0: Good morning, my name is Kelsey Wiggs and I'll be reading from Luke ten twenty-five through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. The word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Kelsey. Good morning, Christ Central. So, um, today, for those of you uh, who missed Pastor Josh and his family. Uh, they are at East Charlotte Prez right now. He's preaching for their pastor while their pastor is out of town, as uh, many of our people are this morning, just traveling out and about during the summer. So Pastor Josh and his family are with, uh, at East Charlotte. So if you missed them this morning, just keep them in your prayers as he uh, preaches there and they fellowship with them. But uh, during the summer, we have been going through A series that we've called community a mess worth making and we just we borrowed that title from a book about relationships uh, written by uh, Paul Tripp and Timothy Lane it's a pretty popular book about relationships if you have some questions about it um, how relationships can be done the cost of it all that sort of deal I commend that resource to you but this series has been about community And community is one of those things that it's a it's a slippery term a lot of people use it a lot of people long for it and does God give us some direction on it? Does He give us some parameters to kind of help us pursue it and so we can experience it in, in our time? And our answer to that has been yes and affirmative. So today, uh, we want to, as we've been exploring different aspects of community, today I want to talk about allyship. Allyship. Uh oh. That's one of those terms, right? Pretty loaded. Um, There's a lot involved in that, but I believe that God has a word for us when it comes to this idea of allyship as we talk about it. I think it's particularly important for us here at Christ Central to talk about this because uh, we, we say in our mission statement that we are here to free people to enjoy God and to hear his truth and to grow in diverse relationships while also Uh, engaging the world with a renewed dignity that comes from Christ. But allyship, what does that look like? That is something that's necessary for us to talk about, especially if we're trying to grow in diverse relationships. How do we be each for the other in our time? Now, when we talk about allyship, you can get into methods of addressing policy and power structures that are um, you know, and, and some of these methods that are proposed by anti-oppression groups that are out there. Some of you know about a lot of these different groups. But what I want to focus on this morning is not particularly the methods of allyship, but our, but the commitment to allyship in the church. What, what does that look like among God's people? What does allyship look like? What What is the basis for that? Because Paul, the Apostle Paul, that is, makes it very clear when you read the epistle to the Galatian Christians, he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Did you bear one another's burdens, right? One another's burdens. Uh-huh. According or so to, we can fulfill the law of Christ. Let's take a look at that law. What is it? Right? But first, before we get to the law of Christ, justice workers you know, out there would define allyship as a lifelong process of building relationships based on trust, consistency, and accountability with marginalized people groups. And another way that we can speak about that in here is cross-cultural compassion, if you will. Cross-cultural compassion. Because I, I recognize that there are many differences among us, age being one of them, uh, also, political views, marital status, right? Not all of us are married. There's singles, married, previously married, all that sort of deal, right? So there's a, there's a diversity there. I recognize that there are also um, differences in, in subculturally. Like not all of us into the same kind of thing, and you know, there are people like me who are part of geek culture and that sort of stuff, and then there are others who are a little bit cooler, but you know, <laughs> that's fine. Uh, so so they're, you know, so they're different, they're, we have differences, but in here at Christ Central, one of the reasons why many of us have been attracted to what God is doing among us is because there are cultural differences, there are larger cultural differences among us. So we want to talk about, as we think about allyship, we want to focus particularly on cross-cultural compassion, because some of the most glaring marginalizations that we experience in this country fall along cultural lines. There's always a cultural component to it. And compassion, the reason why we say that is because that word means to suffer with, right? To suffer alongside, to suffer with uh, another group, another people group. And that's scripture. When it speaks about sin, when it talks about evil, it doesn't just talk about the things that we do, but it also talks about the good that we fail to do. So even as we think about allyship or cross-cultural compassion this morning, we think about what is the, the good that I've been called to do that I, I have failed to do. Allyship is a commitment that is desperately needed in an increasingly pluralistic society, is it not? And our life, uh, uh, our, our our lack of commitment to this cause has life and death consequences. About four years ago, some of you remember in Chapel Hill, um, a sister named Suzanne Barakat lost her brother and two friends to Islamophobia. And apparently there was a guy who's lived in the dorm and he had issues and decided to take out his issues in a violent way, right? And he, he eventually, you know, he's, he goes into the, the apartment where these young people live of Muslim origin and he takes their lives, like, execution style. This happened on near a college campus. And um, he turns himself in, and he says, you know, he did what he did because of, of a parking dispute. And so that, you know, the media runs with that story and says, yeah, you know, this guy was just ticked off because these people were taking up his parking spots and, and, and yeah. you know, he wanted to have enough for his friends when they came over and all that kind of stuff. And so he just, he lost his mind, right, on, on this issue with parking. And some of you have been there, right? I mean, you know, road rage, it gets to you. You feel like sometimes, like, hey, look, I might wanna choke somebody because they just cut me off, whatever. But this guy, he went all the way about a parking dispute. And, and people report this guy as a, a lone wolf who sort of lost his mind. But Barakat says, Suzanne, who survived her, her brother, she says, she says this, she said, if, if a Muslim had shot a white male and two white girls, then he would have been called a terrorist. But what happened with this young man is this, oh, it's just a parking dispute. And so then it took too long to find out the truth and that it was more than just a park. it was surely a parking dispute involved, but it was more than just that. And because of the negative perceptions that are out there, about our Muslim neighbors, or those who are uh, have a Muslim heritage, uh, there, there was a lack of cross-cultural compassion in the backdrop, right, uh, for, for for this hate crime, and there was a, a poor quality of care for the victims, the survivors of these young people who were needlessly killed. Now we we're in, we're in the church, right? I mean, this is it's like, yeah, you know, are aren't we in the church? Um, and and aren't, aren't we God's people? We're, we're supposed to be leaders in the culture? aren't we called to be countercultural? We're supposed to be improving the character of our nation? If that's what we've been called to do, and we're really to be engaged in the real world, the real world, then we, we need to talk about this. We need to talk about these issues. Now what I just shared was an extreme example, but there are Countless softer transgressions, such as name-calling and predatory lending, jokes about those people at the holiday meal, unregulated gentrification, suspicious staring, exclusion at restaurants, disinvestment in public schools, and on and on and on. And let's not forget that we still call this place a so-called Christian nation. And so then many of these transgressions that have been committed, been committed by the church. We need some help. And this is a very familiar story, isn't it, that we've just heard? The Good Samaritan. Many people have used it, not just inside the church, but outside. Two simple points that I wanna bring out from this. One is that if we're going to become radical allies, to marginalize people, culturally marginalized people, then we need to let go of our cultural entitlement and we need to grab hold of God's entitlement. Two points. Letting go of our cultural entitlement, grabbing hold of God's entitlement. Letting go. First point here. So here's Jesus, as we heard this morning, and he's with his disciples, of course, as always, teaching. And many people followed him. It wasn't just the 12. There were many people who followed Jesus, but there were also many who were opposed to him. And Luke tells us that he's then approached by an expert in the law. And this expert in the law was someone who would have known the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures, classically called the Pentateuch. Um, He would have known these things, and he would have studied the, the implications from those texts for how to live one's life, how to order it. So Jesus had a title. He was called rabbi by many people, but he had a title that he didn't appear to be entitled to. This Jesus was never formally educated by rabbis. He wasn't certified. He, He never went to a school of lawmakers and scholars and culture shapers. How could anyone call him rabbi? This is what these teachers must have been thinking. How how could he get the honor that I've worked so hard to attain? How could he get that? Right? How could he get what I was entitled to? How could Jesus get that? And so these men were insulted. And Luke says that this particular teacher put Jesus to the test. I'm going to get this guy. I'm going to catch him out there. And I'm going to let people know that he doesn't need to get what I deserve. So he asked the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when we're talking about eternal life, he's talking about immortality, but not immortality like Blade or Twilight, right? We're not talking about vampires, that sort of deal. But, 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 but eternal life as a gift, the gift of being Spiritually and emotionally and physically whole in a world that's permeated by the peaceful reign of God. That kind of eternal life. And that's a wonderful thing to ask for. And it, it, it's the thing that, that each of us really deep down longs for. And it's right for us, to, It it's right for Him to ask for it, it's right for us to long for it because it is part of God's promise. God is indeed, He's promised it. He promised it to Abraham. He said, that that he would give this to those who would walk in the same faith that Abraham had. And that uh, walking in that faith then would look like a life of love. And if we were committed to that, if we would give ourselves to that, we too would inherit eternal life. And this life of love would be one in which we are loving God with all of our being and loving our neighbor as ourselves. But who can keep that up 100% of the time? Nobody, nobody can do that. So yet, I, I, I think if this teacher, if he had said, Jesus, what do I do? Right? Not just not just what must I do to inherit eternal life, but I, I can't do it. Jesus, tell me, what do I do? Help me. Right? That kind of posture. That Jesus would have told him that I'm going to perfectly fulfill God's law, and I'm going to suffer for your lack of righteousness. And then, more than that, I'm going to transfer my righteousness to you. I'm going to give it to your account. But he didn't say that. He didn't say that. Look at verse 29, and this is important. He says this, but he, desiring to justify himself. Don't miss that, right? So not to completely rely on Jesus' favor, he wanted to justify himself he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? That's the question for our times, isn't it? And who exactly is my neighbor? Answer that for me. Because we're no longer drawing from a culturally homogenous well to imagine who we might become as Americans. That's gone. Some people are holding on to that and it's tearing us apart. We need to let that go, right? And and. And, uh, and who is my neighbor, that's the question. Uh, imagine, uh, I imagine that for many of us, for many of you that this, this city is a lot different from where you've come from. Right? And, and if you're a native of Charlotte or this area, it's not the same place that it used to be. So it can be stressful right, to be in a place like this that is increasingly pluralistic and, and w- without family nearby, you don't have family, or, and just paying the bills. Being unsure about the job market and having to worry about other Christians, feeling offended by your values or something you said or something you may not have said. Who is my neighbor? That's the question. Now, if this man valued his ego, he would not have asked that question. Because anytime you ask a question of Jesus, you gotta prepare to have your ego assaulted. <laughs> Jesus is coming after it big time. And so Jesus exposed his heart. Right? And, and this lawyer thought that he was entitled to, to God's promises. He thought that what God's promise of eternal life is mine simply because of, of my cultural identity. Right? He thought that he had the right of ethnicity. Now, my guess is that most of us in here are not Jewish. Okay? That's just my guess. I'm just looking around real quick. Most of us in here are probably not Jewish. Okay? So, but the activity and the knowledge of God, and the, the, who is the father of Jesus Christ, was part of the Jewish ancestral heritage for thousands and uh, thousands of years, no other ethnicity can say that. In spite of what some people say, as they stand on the corner with their thing and they say, "Read, brother," like no, <laughs> this, uh, th- that is not yours, right? It belongs to y'all. Know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it, be, it belongs. It belongs to the Jews. Let's be clear. Let's be very clear about this, right? So the lawyer. And in the, in the others of, of his mindset, they said, "Look, look, we got a good thing going here, right? We're, we're set. You know, we don't, we uh, we have a system that actually works for us. Like all we have to do is just keep the law, and we're we're good. If we stick to it, then we're eventually going to get our due. We're going to get what's coming to us if we just stick with the, the the system that is that belongs to our culture and our culture alone." We know it's ours by birthright, right? And, and don't necessarily think that, that any outsider should get a taste unless we say so. Right? They have to come on our terms. Here's the problem. God promised Abraham that through him all nations would be blessed. All nations. Right? So the, the Judeans and the Samaritans They had a mutual dislike for each other. If you were here a few weeks ago, you heard Pastor Josh preach on belonging, and he talked about the Samaritan woman who was at the well and was visited by Jesus. He talked a little bit about that background there and how historically, you know, um, Samaritans were birthed after the captivity of the northern kingdom of Israel when they were were taken by the Assyrians uh, many years before. And those who were left behind began to... uh, began to live together with, with foreigners that, that started to move in, and they still had their, the old worship, but then it began to mix with some new things, sort of like foreign religions and things like that. And so those who, who, who began to repatriate that land were like, wait a minute, you know, you guys here have some weird worship stuff going on here. I know you guys are our cousins, but you know, we, we can't get with this new culture that you guys have put together. And so there was this like, mutual dislike for one another. These Samaritans now who were sort of related, but not to be claimed by true Judeans who really knew how to worship God, right? So they, they, they didn't like each other. And then you, you, know, you even see that, and then this was said before too by um, Pastor Josh had, had shared this, that, um, that many would in fact just like walk for miles around Samaria rather than going through so they could get to the northern part of the area, probably to get to Galilee or someplace like that. So there was this mutual dislike, but the problem is this Judean lawyer and others like him were thinking that they could get God's favor by how well they were loving their neighbors, right? You look at this relationship between Judeans and Samaritans, and yet they're thinking, I can get what's coming to me, just by loving my neighbors, you're clearly not doing that, okay? So when they were, in fact, falling quite short, right, by, by their lack of compassion for Samaritans, they were hoping for this. So, and now we can shake our heads as we hear about this. And it's right to do that. But let us also weep for ourselves. If we ask the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, we actually don't really ask that question, do we? The other question that we tend to ask is, what shall I do to inherit the American dream? That's the question. When I say us, I mean the churches. I'm not just talking about Christ Central. I mean, it's just like churches throughout the land. Doesn't matter, doesn't matter what culture. Just so many churches, churches I grew up in and the circles I kept asking the same question. What shall I do to inherit the American dream? Not eternal life, the American dream. Wow. Right. 13 years of childhood that each of us live. At the, during that time, we're told to get a college education uh, just so we can get our part in our country's future. For 13 years, we're, we're, we think about this. We're focused on it. We jump through all the exam hoops and the after-school hoops and the service team hoops and the dating the right person hoops. And... The scholars today, they call this a meritocracy. That's what we live under. Like we just keep earning certain things, keep achieving and achieving and achieving, and at some point, you'll get there. You'll earn what's coming to you, what it is entitled to you. It's the American dream. We follow the law. We stick with the system, hoping to inherit our slice of the pie. But some of us find out that that system will choke you out that it will shoot you in the back, that it will look the other way while you're sexually harassed, even when you've proven your loyalty to the American promise over and over and over again. And when you get a taste of the American promise, you also find that there's still much that you have to do just to keep it, just to maintain it. You have to do so much. So we lie to ourselves and to others And work until we drop and cheat a little and and have, just so we can have the right networks and the right money and the right skills and the, the right temperament. And most people will tell you, if they're honest, that one day they look in the mirror and they don't recognize themselves anymore. They don't like who they become. All that hard work for something that we think we're entitled to. Is it worth it? Is the it American dream? Is it, is it really worth that much? When the lawyer heard Jesus answer, he should have felt devastated, right? Because all that hard work that he had put in, his pedigree, everything that he had, his heritage, and then at the end of this, Jesus tells the story that the Samaritan is the one who may still be more, more worthy of eternal life than he is? What? What What? all my effort and my identity and all that? My enti- Was it worth it? Is it truly worth it? Someone in this room this morning may be thinking that they're entitled to life's best because they got straight A's through all of school, and, and you got made achievements at, at work, and you followed the system. Jesus may do to you what he did to this lawyer, and he broke his whole junk down, right? You may, at some point in your life, if you haven't already, get the lowest grade you've ever achieved in your life. What will you do then? So you might be sitting here today. You might be your family's last hope. You're the one who broke the cycle of poverty. You're the one who broke the cycle of addiction. You're the one who, who broke the cycle of harsh economic conditions for generations to come. All the hopes and, the, the hopes and fears of all the years are laid on you this morning, right? It is, it, it's on you. You've got to carry this, and, and you, you work in that meritocracy. And, and, and I, I know that I've worked real hard and, and I've gone to college and I've done what people told me. I've done what the establishment told me that I needed to do, and I, but I'm just, I'm barely holding on. These burdens are too much. We have to let go of our entitlement. We got to let go of it. It's going to kill you. So Jesus challenges his lawyer out of love. And That's how I'm coming to you this morning, out of love. He, he, he challenges his lawyer, he challenges me, he challenges all of us. But you, you wouldn't think that, that bowing to the American meritocracy would ruin you, but it will. It will. Many of you can already give testimonies to it. You can talk about your families and what's happened, people who've been chasing after status, and thinking that if they just keep going, they'll eventually get what they're, what's theirs, what they're entitled to. And they've lost you, they've lost their kids, they've lost their dignity, just all kinds of stuff. If we continue to live in self-assured righteousness, we become people who mock and ignore and rob the wounded and the marginalized. But if we're going to be saved from ourselves, then we need to let go of our entitlement. But Jesus is merciful. He doesn't just leave us empty-handed. and He doesn't say, just say, let, let go of this. He didn't just tell, talk to the teacher and say, let, let go of it, let go of it. But no, he, as he's heading into the future, he says, I want you to grab hold of something. Grab hold of what? God is entitled to. Grab hold of God's entitlement. Look at me in verse 33. And yes, I am wrapping up. But verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Do you see the cost here? Hey, do, you, do you see what he's giving away? Verse 35, And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Look at this. This kind of care that is given, this radical allyship, if you will, how he, he comes out of his own pocket. Everything that this person has earned, he gives to the Samaritan. He not only cares for him physically, but makes sure that he has lodging, and he pays for that. And then if that weren't enough, he says, look, if there's anything else, I'm actually going to come back and give more. What does it take to become that kind of person And when I say radical, I mean from the heart, right? Not not just the surface kind of allyship, but from the heart. That's why I use the word radical. What does it take to to come, to, to get to that point, to be transformed into this kind of person that Jesus illustrates in his story? We need to grab hold of God's entitlement. Look at this Samaritan. He's somebody that had compassion. He saw this Judean on the road as if that person were himself, and he tended to him with his own hands, and he paid for his medical expenses. And Jesus says to this teacher and to us, go and do likewise. Can we be allies to the culturally marginalized like that? It, Jesus' way is so demanding, isn't it? Like, how, how can we fulfill it and know that God's promise is ours? We must do what the lawyer didn't do, when he was called to go and do likewise, we must ask Jesus to have mercy on us. Jesus, have mercy on me. We have to see ourselves as a Judean left half dead on the road by the crippling demands of a society in which you have to earn your spot and climb the ladder till someone says, stop or you die trying. Jesus, Have mercy. We have to see ourselves as left half dead on the road by the crippling shame of our families of origin that we just keep hiding from with our addictions and our work achievements or our anger at those who are different from us. Jesus, have mercy. We have to see our sin and our shame and our self righteous path to prosperity and how those things have left us bleeding out on the road. Jesus, Have mercy. When we're done trying to rescue ourselves, we need to look up and see the true good Samaritan who was stripped and beaten and killed by crucifixion that self-assured sinners like you and I might be healed and walk right into what only Jesus could earn for us, his kingdom. See, Christ was the one who was ultimately marginalized, both by God and by man, that we could inherit what only he is entitled to. And so when we look up at Jesus, we see that in him we have a true ally. If you're free then from depending on your cultural privileges to get ahead, and this is important, if you receive, All that you do have and will have as a gift from the Lord. Not something that, hey, I earned this for myself. I got this. No, this is a gift from God. Then you'll be free to suffer alongside others in ways that may cost you. The Apostle Peter says in one of his epistles, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. See, when you give up cultural righteousness and live under Christ's mercy, then, only then, can you joyfully come alongside the culturally marginalized not only to suffer alongside them, but also to learn. It's time for us to squash the competition and become radical allies in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us a true ally. In Jesus, we have someone who has come to suffer alongside us as one of us. And in him, we get to share everything that he alone is entitled to. We thank you, Lord, for all these many and manifold blessings. We pray, oh God, that as you continue to bless us, that we will receive all things from your hand as a gift, that we might be changing to people who are willing to give stuff away, to give ourselves away so that others might be lifted up with the tide. And Lord, let us not be mistaken. It is the tide that you bring not just a tie that was created by our government or created by one particular culture over another, but a tie that you bring and that you will bring. Lord, we want to all be lifted up together, that all the nations may glorify your name and give you the honor that is due to you. Father, see our hearts and have mercy on us. We cry out to you because the enslavement to entitlement is so deep. We want so much to get what's coming to us, Lord, and we're so easy. So, so it's so easy for us, Father, to, to criticize, Lord, the others who are who are who are giving themselves to the American dream, and it looks like they're making it. But Lord, deep down, we want the same thing, and we're mad because we can't get it. But God, through Jesus, you've given us more than what this country can give. You've given us your kingdom. And we want to live in it fully and for your glory and honor. And we want to see those who we formerly called enemies become our brothers and sisters. And we want to stand side by side and suffer with each other and hold one another and serve one another and love one another and, and carry one another and bear one another's burdens so that the world might know that we serve a God who saves us by carrying the burdens of all humanity. Oh God, the Lord over all oppression, and the Lord who grants salvation to all men, we lift up our cares to you this morning, our burdened hearts. Change us according to your mercy and your goodness. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.